Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I am pleased to bring to you the second Aliyah of the Sidra of Vayetchanan. As I mentioned in the previous Aliyah, which ended with Shema et achukim ve'el hanishpatim asher anochi melamed etchem la'asot, which means listen to the laws that I'm teaching you to do, and Chaim Kochem Ayom, you who have listened to God are all surviving today, we would have expected that to have been the end of the first speech and the beginning of the, and then ready to begin the second speech where he actually teaches the laws that he's just said for all of these reasons, go follow the laws. Instead, Moshe launches in, into an epilogue of his first speech and quite a lengthy one. It covers this speech that we're about to do today or this end of the speech, this epilogue, covers, in my opinion, a large number of topics, most of which will be explored more fully uh, later in Devarim. So before we begin reading the epilogue, which starts in chapter uh, 4, verse 5, and ends all the way in verse 40, I'll try to break it down into component parts because it's rather uh, too big to sort of swallow all at once. Uh, number one, in verse 5 uh, through verse 8, there is an emphasis on the importance of embracing the Torah as sort of a unique and new scholarship that will define the Israeli people, both to themselves internally and externally to the outside world. In verse 9, in the second section of this epilogue, Moshe reminds people of the theophany, that is the revelation, the sound of God heard it at Sinai, and emphasizes that God has no physical form, and they saw that he had no physical form. There were fire, there were clouds, a lot of noise, there was the sound of God's voice, hence the word theophany, the sound of God, but no image. And any attempt to create an image and to give substance to God is a, ra- is a one-way trip into idol worship, or at least avodah zarah. The difference between avodah zarah and idol worship I will get to a little bit later. Um, in verse 21, Moshe emphasizes that since he has... Uh, been the middleman between God and the people, a topic that we're going to explore quite a bit in the fourth Aliyah, where the people say, listen, we, we don't want to hear God directly, or we, we heard him and now we can't stand anymore. You go for us and be an intermediary. And also, since Moshe can't go with the people into Israel, he predicts that the people will be tempted to substitute him, Moshe, with an artificial intermediary, much like they did with the golden calf some time ago. Um, and they will create some kind of image and incorrect worship that allows people to feel that they have not lost their direct connection, that is Moshe, their direct connection with God. And Moshe is telling the people that he is not a demigod, and that it was not his power which redeemed them from Egypt. He is just a person, he's just a messenger, and he's just a teacher. Uh, the fourth section, verse 25, predicts that the people, forewarned of these things or not, will in fact forget God, will turn to idol worship, or actually more appropriately, avodah zarah, and as a result, will be expelled from Israel. In the fifth section, verse 29, God says even though they are in exile, there's still hope, and when the people really turn back to him with all of their hearts, so to speak, uh, then God will, in his mercy, redeem them. And verse 32 starts the final part of the epilogue, where God emphasizes, or Moshe emphasizes, the uniqueness of the uh, the Israel's historical or historical religious experience, uh, one where the entire people and mass had a revelation of God, and where one entire nation had en masse uh, been redeemed from another country, and as a result of all this unique history and unique relationship, the people must follow God's commandments and pass them down from generation to generation in order to guarantee a continuation of that very special history in the promised land. And now on to the text. Rei, 
Behold, I taught you, past tense, I'll get back to that in a second, I taught you the statutes and laws exactly as the Lord my God commanded me to be done in the very land that you are entering thither to conquest, to inherit. Note that in the first verse of chapter 4, Moshe said, Asher ani milameid, meaning the ones I am teaching you now, or will soon, soon start to teach you in the second speech. But here Moshe says, which I taught you, Asher limanati etchem. And the most likely interpretation is that Moshe is referring to the full set of laws that were given on and in and around Har Sinai 40 years before, and that Moshe has obviously been continually teaching for these past 40 years. I should also point out that La Sotkei of Aretz does imply that these Torah laws, the Torah itself, were intended specifically to be performed in Israel. And this is, of course, one of uh, the Ramban's Nachmanani sources for his famous, albeit slightly controversial, approach, which uh, goes so far to say that outside the land of Israel, Jews are only required to keep the laws of the Torah from a rabbinic ordinance, which is, and the reason why they do so is not because the laws have so much of an effect, but because uh, the Jews have to make sure not to forget them by the time they do get back to Israel. This doesn't apply. The Ramban does not apply this to negative commandments like don't kill, which apply obviously inside and outside the land of Israel. And they don't apply to personal commandments like keeping kosher, that is body-oriented commandments. Nonetheless, many of the positive commandments, according to the Ramban, such as sacrifices, apply only in Israel. To quote the Ramban, There are many statutes and laws that are not performed outside of Israel. Oh, the Ramban says, trying to tell you what's sort of going on, but not talking about it too much. Oh, your Mosh, Ikara Mitzvot, Kulan Ba'aretz, Kemo, Sheramazdi, Besod Ha'aretz. Alternatively, the Torah is hinting that the essential aspect of the commandments are all or exist really only in the land of Israel, as I hinted to in the Kabbalistic understanding, that's what he means by sod, in the Kabbalistic understanding of the land. And what the Ramban is referring to here is his treatise on the issue of the importance, the connection between the commandments and the land of Israel that he goes into some depth into in the book of Vayikra, chapter 18, verse 25, where essentially explains that outside the land of Israel, there is no direct link to God through the commandments. And in fact, God, instead of sort of being there himself, appoints these angelic intermediaries which sort of mediate between God, man and and a spiritual connection with the heavens as a result doing many specific many many of these commandments outside of Israel according to Rabban do not have the same effect or perhaps any effect as they would if they were to be done in Israel and that's why they're to be done specifically in Israel of course not every commentator takes this approach but it is the plain sense of the text here which says that you're supposed to do the the mitzvot in the land of Israel God forbid I'm not telling anyone who is not living in Israel to to stop doing God's mitzvot. That would be the wrong thing to do. Uh, but I'd be happy to tell everyone that they'd get a better bang for their mitzvah. Uh, they get a bang for their mitzvah buck uh, if they move to Israel and do all of those commandments there. Uh, there's another possibility, if the Ramban is not right, that what Moshe is saying is he's about to describe the law's that are pertinent to the land of Israel. Because as as you'll go through the second speech in the coming chapters, I think what you'll notice is that what sets apart the commandments that that uh, Moshe specifically wanted to go over, because he doesn't go over all 600, 613 of them. Uh, there's a few hundred in the in the coming ver, uh, the coming chapters in the coming books, but in the coming book of Devarim, but not all of them. And I think you'll find that there's a tendency to focus on things which are really needed to build the land of Israel and a nation and a religious nation inside of them. So maybe that's the sense. Anyway, returning to the epilogue. <laughs> 
הגויה גדול הזה, כי מי גוי גדול אשר לא אלוהים קרובים אליו, כאדוני אלוהינו בכל קוראינו אליו, ומי גוי גדול אשר לא חוקים ושבטים צדיקים, כל התורה הזאת אשר אנוכי נותן לפיכם היום. And you must make sure to do them, because it, that is the Torah, it's in the singular feminine, the Torah, is your wisdom and your understanding. And I'll return to this idea of chokhmah, wisdom and bina, understanding shortly. To, to the view of the nations who will hear all of these laws and say, surely this is a nation of wisdom and understanding of this great people. Now Moshe is speaking again. For what great nation has just statutes and laws, that is, ones that are truly just, moral, ethical, correct, like all of the Torah that I, this Torah that I placed before you today. Now, getting to the issue of Chochmah. Chochmah in the ancient world, um, when they heard of the term Chochmah, or their language, wisdom, it was a worldly knowledge, science, philosophy, engineering, any kind of general knowledge needing to make the human endeavor successful. However, um, in many of our wisdom books, like Proverbs, and, and I should mention, actually, before I get there, that even for us, the, that the word Chochmah takes on that implication. That is, when we talk about uh, there was a woman who was a, a Chochmah woman who turned out to be an actor. She was a whiz at acting, and uh, Yoav, David's general, hired her to put on a performance to convince David of something regarding his son. So the idea of Chochmah is, is a skill, but it's more than that. And in our wisdom books, such as Proverbs and the book of Job, Chochmah and Bina is also defined as fear of God and following God's commandments. For instance, to quote from Job chapter 28, which is all about Chochmah, it ends as follows. Vayomer la'adam, and God said to man, probably the first man, Hain irat Adunai hi Chochmah, it is the fear of God, which is wisdom. Vesur meira, and avoiding evil, Bina is understanding. Uh, so essentially, what God, what Moshe is saying is, you're, you got to open a new university, as it were, here. And the focus is not on uh, science, math, engineering. The focus is on get God's laws and following them and understanding the God-man relationship and fearing God and loving God. And all of this, this new university, this Torah university, is revolutionary and new. And it makes the Jewish people stand out. And the idea is that these laws of God, and in fact the relationship with God, um, must be turned into a dedicated school of scholarly activity, as we will see later on in the Shema and in other parts of this book. Moshe now warns the people not to forget the distinctive nature of the Theophany in Mount Sinai as we start a new section in verse 9. Just be careful, guard yourselves closely all the days of your lives, not to forget the events that you saw with your own eyes, lest they be forgotten from your hearts, or really from your minds, and educate your children and your grandchildren on these matters. Specifically, Moshe is referring to the theophany, um, and the revelation of God at Sinai, and how they heard the Ten Commandments, or at least two of them. The day that you stood before the Lord, your God, at Chorev, Chorev is also known as Mount Sinai, as God instructed me, Moshe, to gather, what he said was, gather to me the nation so that I, that is God, will cause them to hear my commandments in order that they will learn to fear me for all the days that they live on the land. 
and they in turn will teach their own kids, i.e. not only the laws, but the revelation and how it took place on the mountain, and hence the need to be to fear me, to be in awe of me. So Moshe is relating what happened after that. Notice the emphasis there, which I'll translate in a second. And you approached and stood beneath the mountain. Beneath the mountain, the simple sense of which is just at the foot of the mountain. And the mountain was burning with fire up to the very skies with clouds which were dense and dark. And the Lord spoke to you. Moshe relates from within the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no image, only sound. That is, he repeats it twice. You only heard. You did not see an image of God. And that's going to be very important. We'll see why. You can now, uh, uh, that is, Moshe is really kind of driving in, in, in his purpose of this speech, of this section of speech. He's saying, don't embroider the facts. Do not simplify and thereby contaminate the experience that you had, that theophany that you had, by imagining that God took some kind of form during his revelation at Mount Sinai, because there was no image, and there is no image of God. There can't be an image of God, because God has no image. And you need to teach your kids that, because it's the center of the religion. It's the very core of the religion. And now Moshe, after explaining to the people, they have to be very careful not to, to physicalize God, because they themselves saw, God, uh, saw that, there, that there was no form of God, only the sound of God. Moshe now moves into the second problem that they're going to have, which is to state that he, Moshe, is not a demigod. Now, there is an inherent human need to give form, to give physical form to a deity. One could sense this just by observing the two largest religions on this earth, uh, Islam and Christianity, uh, one, the, the latter of which does indeed give a form of sorts to its deity, or a full form to its deity, and one which is Islam, which spends a huge amount of effort fighting uh, any possible, even vague reference to the form of God, or even the form of their prophet. And this is, you don't have to fight something against something so much if there's not a, a real tendency to fight. So if God has no form, then what Moshe is saying is, so fine, you accept that God has no form, but since people have a tendency to need to physicalize their gods so they could connect with him, the people will start turning to an intermediary. Now, up to now, the, it's been Moshe. Uh, but the tendency is to turn Moshe into some kind of quasi-supernatural being to, to elevate him to a demigod status, which is exactly... Um, how the people referred to him when they made the Egel. Moshe, the man, is no longer here, so now we need an Egel to communicate with God. So Moshe sets the record straight. As for me, the Lord commanded me at that time, i.e. the time of the Theophany, to teach you the statutes and laws and make sure you do them in the land you're crossing over there. And, and the sense is Moshe saying, listen, I'm just a malamid. I'm just a teacher. So be very careful with yourselves. And yes, the word nafshotechem has the sense of guard your souls, which means your very spirit, your spiritual being, since you did not see any kind of image on the day the Lord spoke to you on Choreb from within the fire. Because if you do assume an image, this is what's going to happen. Pentashchitun. 
Vasitem lachem pesel tunat kol samel, tavnit zachar on keva, tavnit kol behema, sherba arets, tavnit kol sipur kanav, asher tauf bashamayim, tavnit kol romes baadama, tavnit kol daga, asher bamayim mitachal arets. Lest you corrupt, meaning corrupt yourselves, or according to Ibn Ezra, lest you corrupt what you saw. And you make a pesel for yourself, a sculpted idol, of any kind of form or symbol in the shape of either a male or female, in the shape of any animal that is on the land, or the shape of any winged bird that flies in the skies, or the shape of any crawly things in the ground, or the shape of any fish in the waters that are beneath the earth. I'm not sure, but I, I do not think it's a coincidence that he uses the word pesel here for a a a, a, um, a chiseled image. Uh, and and the, the word is very close to the words that God told Moshe when he told him to chisel out the second set of tablets. Pesol lecha which means there's a very fine line between correct physical worship, where I chisel out tablets to put the word of God down on, and deviant worship, where I chisel out an image to put God, to, to superimpose God himself onto, or, or God's messenger Moshe onto. And and here I, I want to make, just make a comment about the difference between Avodat Elilim and Avodat Zara. And we could use the golden calf as an example. Now Rashi thinks that the golden calf was Avodat Elilim, worshipping other gods. But every other commentator, Ramban, Ibn Ezra, uh, Rajbam, Rashi's grandson, all say that the golden calf was only there to replace Moshe. Which means it wasn't Avodat Elilim, but it was Avodat Zara which is similar, of course, to Nadav and Aviyu bringing in Eish Zara before the Lord. They were trying to worship the Lord. They were just doing it the wrong way. So Avodat Elin is always Zara. Uh, worshiping idols is always strange worship. But you, not all Avodat Zara is Avodat Elin. You could try to worship God in the wrong way, and it's still Avodat Zara. And you might not even think it's that bad, because God is still on your mind. And what God is going to do here is emphasize that it is. And now, let's get back to the text. After Moshe has warned them not to create any kind of forms which are earth-based animate objects, birds uh, uh, and the like, birds, beasts and the like, creepy crawlies, he now turns his eyes heavenward, so to speak, or tells people not to turn their eyes heavenward. Unless you raise your eyes to the skies or the heavens, perhaps, and you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and you deviate, you get pushed along the wrong path, so to speak or let yourself get dragged along the long path. And you bow down to them and you worship them. These things the Lord, your God, has set aside for all the other nations that are under the heavens. Now, this last part is difficult, but I think the sense is, the plain sense is, is Moshe is differentiating the heavenly objects because, at least what he seems to be saying, is that other nations are allowed to worship the other objects. In fact, God may have actually created the sun and the moon and the stars uh, if not specifically for the other nations to worship, but at least they could if they wanted to. Uh, Ibn Ezra understands he takes it down a notch from actual idol worship into astro- astrology and says that each nation was given a sign, the sun, the moon, the stars, zodiac, etc., as sort of a guiding star or a, or a guarding star. And Moses warning that the, chil- the children of Israel, that, listen, the nations could pull this off, but since you or have a unique relationship with God, any kind of approach uh, would be, of astrological approach, uh, would be at odds with your unique uh, 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 religion of monotheism. Uh, we could also just translate this more simply, which is that the objects in the sky were used for just a general uh, scientific use, for light and for timekeeping and, 
and that any worship of them is in error. But the the bot, but the bottom line is these uh, heavenly objects, these hosts or heavens, were separated out from the other ones because there's the sense that there is something special about them, but not for worship for the Jewish people. And now that Moshe emphasizes that all of Jewish history uh, uh, has only one source of causation of God, that is God. That is the only reason it exists is because uh, uh, because of God's desire that it exists. Um, he also says that it only has one purpose. And it was you that the Lord took out of the iron furnace from Egypt, which gives a sense that the Egypt sort of, in some small silver lining to a very dark furnace, it sort of molded the Jewish people or carved the Jewish people into a viable nation. Anyway, continuing with the verse, to be his own nation, a nachala, a, a portion. We'll get back to this word in a second, as you are today. Now, as for me, Moshe, And the Lord became angry with me on your account. Now, before, when Moshe said that God wouldn't let him go into Israel, I said Moshe was not taking a shot at Israel there or blaming them for his troubles, uh, but that he was doing it for their sake, for their well-being. But here it's hard to interpret in any other way. It seems that because of their complaints, either the complaints of the spies, as the commentator of the Abar Vanel asserts, or by complaining about the water with the second hitting of the rock incident, it set into motion Moshe's not being allowed to go in Israel, and returning to the Pasuk, God swore not to allow me to cross over to the Jordan and not come into the good land that God is giving to you as a portion. Note the double use, by the way, of the word nachala, that is, you are God's portion in the previous verse, and Israel is your portion in this verse. Now, Continuing on with the verse, indeed, I will die in this land that is on the east bank in the Jordan River. I will not cross the Jordan. Rather, you will cross and conquer or inherit this good land. Now, what's going on here is it's it doesn't it wouldn't if it's just Moshe sort of blowing off some steam and being angry about the fact that he can't go into Israel, it wouldn't fit into the overall flow. So what is it that uh, that Moshe is trying to say? Moshe is trying to say as follows. He's be careful not to forget God's covenant, meaning the Ten Commandments, which he made with you, lest you make an idol. Now, what does that have to do with Moshe not going into the land? Because Moshe is not complaining about not going into the land for complaining's sake. He's saying, if you make any kind of image, which command God commanded you to do, God is like a consuming fire, a zealous God. He, he, he will, it, it, it will go bad for you. Whether you make it to, to give a physicality to God, to to create some kind of physical presence and image of God, or whether now that I am not going to be able to go into Israel, you're going to make some kind of physical representation of me to become some kind of quasi-demigods like you did with the golden calf, you're going to any kind of image. Any kind at all, no matter how small that role is, whether it, it's even there because you think you're going to worship God through it, it's like lighting up a cigarette in a room full of pure oxygen. Hashem Elokecha is an Eish Ochla. It's a fire. He is a consuming fire. He is a zealous God. Since God is right there, if you try pulling this off, it's going to blow up in your faces. Now, in this next section, beginning with verse 25, after warning Israel not to make this any, any type of image, not to make this mistake, Moshe is going to tell the people what's at stake if they, if they transgress. Now, 
as I said, it's not an issue here of, of simple idol worship. And, and we'll see that because idol worship in its true form does come up in a little bit. Um, I don't think the danger is that people want to replace God. It's that they'll want to give him a, a substance, a form, or, or give a substance to uh, some kind of quasi-supernatural uh, middleman. Um, so God predicts as follows. Now, it's not entirely clear whether the following is a prediction, a prophecy that this will definitely happen, or whether God is just saying this is likely to happen in order to prevent it. Uh, the Rashi does take the point of view that it's an actual prophecy, uh, and in fact, it even predicts the number of years with the word Venosham Tem in the next verse, but I'm not going to get into that. When you and your children and your grandchildren, when you have children and grandchildren, you become old timers, Venosham Tem, from the word Yashan, to be old in the land, when one senses the word no shantem, a sense of complacency. And you will act sinfully or corruptly, and you will make an idol in any kind of image, and you will do what is bad, what is evil, in the eyes of the Lord to make him angry. The word lachis usually indicates transgressing God out of rebellion, like sticking a finger in God's eye, so to speak, uh, rather than just sinning out of laziness or greed or the like. So perhaps the people are being warned that if they make this image, um, uh, then what's happening is that they should not imagine that their hearts are in the right place and they're just trying to make an image to understand God better, but just the, the opposite, that making an image of any kind is itself inherently an act of rejection, as if you were doing it lahachis. Uh, I am swearing in the following, I'm swearing in the following witnesses, the heavens and the earth, that they, that should you make such images, you will surely be lost or destroyed or removed from the land that you are crossing over the Jordan to conquer or to inherit. You will not have long years, rather you shall surely be destroyed. Uh, Moshe is clearly referring to the swearing in ceremony of the famous song of Hazinu, Hazinu Imrefi, and I'll get back to the issue of why the heavens and the earth may be being used as, as quote-unquote witnesses. And the Lord will scatter you among the nations, and you will remain only few in number among the Gentiles to where God will drive you. And there you shall worship gods made by the hand of men, gods of wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Now what's interesting here is there is a prediction or a prophecy that it is specifically in exile where they'll worship these other, these false gods, which in my opinion supports, uh, that is, these gods will be completely inert. It's almost like God is making a joke out of them. Look at, at what you will have uh, reduced yourself to, actual idol worship, which is why I think the images that they created before were not idol worship, because this actually is true idol worship. Uh, um, and, and, and therefore, it seems strange that even though they were in their own country and they sort of become complacent that they were not doing Avodah Elohim, but when they get exiled into another country, you know, why should they actually return to true, you know, true idol worship, that is the worshipping of stones and wood and imagining that there is actually power to that? 
Um, what Rashi says that, that they're not going to actually worship the idols themselves, that would be ridiculous, but that they're going to be slaves to the servants of false gods, and therefore a servant to a servant of a false god is like a servant to a false god himself. However, the simplest sense, I think, is much like one might see if one read the book of, uh, when we read the book of Daniel. It's very difficult in Israel, uh, sorry, in exile, when you go into exile, not to accept the theopraxy, the the religious practice and religious customs of those lands. You get stuck with what everybody else does and either you get forced to do it or it becomes impossible not to do it. Um, it, it it's kind of, uh, I remember Rav Chaim Soloveitchik mentioned, uh, taught me once in class that, uh, that in the, in the medieval times, in the year 1000 in France, Germany, people weren't converting away from Judaism because they believed in, uh, in the Trinity and they rejected Judaism. It's just that people wanted to be normal. That is, if you were a Jew, you had to live in a ghetto-like uh, area. You couldn't work. You could, you, people just wanted to feel like human beings. And the only way to do that would be to take the trappings of, of the people around them, religiously and culturally. Now, of course, Daniel and his three friends refused to bow down to idols. They refused to eat non-kosher. They refused. In fact, they risked their lives to become a, to, to, to not become assimilated into Babylonian custom and practice. But clearly, the Torah, the Tanakh there, is presenting their actions as heroic, which means they are not the norm. They are the... They are heroic and not normal. However, um, nonetheless, be, apparently, being thrown into this crass form of religion uh, apparently rubs the wrong way against the exiles. So it appears to have a silver lining, as Moshe will predict or perhaps prophesize of in the next verse. There will be a backlash for a renewed uh, relationship with God and a desire to return to home to Israel. Uvikashtem misham et matzata and there, that is when you're, that is when you set your hearts and minds, like it says in the Shema in chapter six, to go back to the, to search out the Lord God, you will find him, uh, uh there in exile. When things get really bad for you and it, that is the troubles find you, and this, of course, refers to all the troubles that are described in chapter 28 in the Tochachan Kitavo. Uh, this is just a short form of that. I said most of this epilogue really refers to or gives a summary of things that will be explored later, such as this rebuke. Um, but all those troubles that find you, and they will find you in those end of, in those later days, in those Acharit Ayamim. And of course, Acharit Ayamim carries messianic overtones when God comes to redeem his people out of exile. The word Acharit doesn't really mean the end of days. That really means later days. But that's another discussion beyond what we could do here. So you will, when you accept God with all of your heart and you listen to his voice, he'll find you. Ki el rachum Adonai lohecha, v'lo yarpacha, because the Lord, your God, is a merciful God. He will not loosen you, meaning loosen you from his grip, let you go. He will not destroy you. He will not forget the covenant he swore with your swore to with your forefathers. Now, it is not clear in the next section, which describes God's unique interaction uh, with the, with the, and relationship with the children of Israel, whether it's being introduced to support the reason why God will be merciful in exile, even though they are on the verge of complete loss, or whether it's meant to support the explanation of why God's response to Israel's transgression is so much, with so much zealousy, why just making these images, even in my opinion, if they want to worship God, 
is being reacted so to so strongly, why God punishes them so harshly. It's not clear if this is explaining why God is merciful or if why God is zealous against the Jews when they are transgressing. Indeed, inquire right now about the original days which preceded you, from the very day God created man on the earth. Notice he uses the word Elohim only, so the impression is take a universal approach, or maybe even it means look it up in the story of Bereshit. And perhaps he means talk to the members of the wisdom schools who ponder things like creation, who track human history from one end of the heavens to the other, which means look up every place of human existence, every human uh, a settlement on the earth and search all of their histories and you will find, and, and God asks rhetorically, was there ever, ever such a great thing as anything like it have ever been heard of? Has it ever been heard of of a nation who heard the voice of God talk from the fire as you heard it, that is, you heard the voice of God, and yet lived? Now, true, they couldn't handle more than two commandments or perhaps ten commandments, but at least they handled the beginning of it. They saw the theophany. So has everything, anything like this ever happened? And the answer is no. Or did God ever do miracles to come and take one nation out of another nation with miracles and signs and wonders and war like the war at the sea with a strong hand and an outstretched, and an outstretched limb meaning all together with obvious and overwhelming show of miraculous force and with awe-inspiring events like everything the Lord your God did for you in your sight in Egypt. And, and I'd like to mention something here uh, in the name of Rav Amital, Zichronot Sadak Levrachan, Rav Amital, the Rosh Hashiva of, of Gush Etzion, the former Rosh Hashiva, and uh, someone who I learned Torah from, uh, passed away just last Thursday. A, a great loss, a wonderful man, an escapee from the Holocaust, a survivor of the Holocaust, um, an early seller of Israel, a teacher of Torah, an officer of the Israeli army, a member of Knesset, a, a, a starter of one of the great yeshivas in Israel. Um, so in his honor, I would like to say something I just heard from him, which is that if you think about modern Zionism, there, there has never been a national, there, there have been many nationalist movements, of course, many people have created their own nations, but they've always been living on that land. Judaism is unique, modern Zionism, and ancient Zionism as well is unique in that Living outside of a land, a people get together and are inspired and motivated and we believe with God's help, helped to get back into a completely different land and to start a national nation there. That is usually national, I believe always national movements always start on that land. And Zionism, this return to Israel is new in that no matter where Jews are, they still have this desire not to go to Uganda and not to go to Florida or whatever it is, there's this desire to create a nation, but a nation specifically in Israel. And that is, uh, that's a unique thing. In any event, Hareta is a nifal, passive, uh, kind of a command passive form, which is a very strange form. And, and I think the translation is something like, you were given the sight, you were shown in order to see meaning you were given true sight and true knowledge that the Lord is God and there's none other besides him. Which means the whole idea of monotheism, of the uniqueness of God, of the aloneness and oneness of God, that God went out of his way at the theophany of heaven to make sure that you saw it. 
From the heavens, God broadcast you his voice to teach you, to instruct you, to discipline you. And on the land, he showed you his great fire and his words you heard from with, with, within the fire. And all this explains why the heavens and the earth now were used as God's witnesses, because the heavens and the earth seem to have been changed themselves. Something happened in the heavens and the earth to make sure that the that nation of Israel witnessed in full view exactly what sets God apart. And therefore, should they fall down from that, it is the heavens and the earth that will be witnesses against that. And now Moshe explains why all of this is happening. It is a result of the fact that he, that, that is God, loves your forefathers, not just love, but loves your forefathers, and chose his offsprings, off, offspring after him. Now it's not clear why it goes into the singular. One would have thought it should have said, and chose their offsprings after them. But I think perhaps he's referring just to Jacob, because if you remember, Avram did have kids that were not chosen to live in the land of Israel. That's Yishmael and Keturah. And Isaac also had Esau, who was also not chosen. Jacob is the one who all of his children were chosen, and maybe that's why it goes into the singular. Anyway, getting back to the verse, he took you out of Egypt in front of him, that is, God himself was present with his great strength. And you know this now today. And remember the words of knowing, like viadata and viahavta, or viahav. Uh, those are those words of understanding, vizacharta. Those words, even though they are seen in the past tense, they need to be understood in the present tense. And it, like it says, vatayadati, and now not I knew, but now I know. And you must set to your mind that the Lord, that is Yudke Vavke, this personal God that took you out of Egypt, is the same God who is in the heavens above and the earth below. That is, there is none other. Meaning omnipresence and aloneness and oneness. And this, of course, is the foundation of monotheism. It's, it's what we teach our kids at the youngest age. God is here and God is there and God is really everywhere. But, but even the most wise, after years and years of study, have a hard time comprehending, comprehending this idea of the uniqueness and oneness and omnipresence and omnipotence and omniscience of God because it's hard for human beings to get their minds around it. So it's not just a theory, it's not just a philosophy and theology. You have to practice it. You must keep, literally guard, his laws and commandments that I, that is Moshe, and command you today in order that he, capital H, will make it good for you and for your children. And in order that you extend your days, which doesn't just mean days, it means years, eras, lifetimes, on the land that the Lord, your God, is giving you for all time. That is, you have to know all these things, you have to know the uniqueness and oneness of God, and more, most importantly, you have to follow those commandments. Otherwise, it's all theory and no practice. So, we're almost ready for the second speech, one that will describe the, the, the how to keep the laws and, and the laws themselves. But we will see in the next time. Yeah, there's one slight narrative, uh, historical narrative, which interrupts the process. And we'll see that, God willing, tomorrow.